delay. You're going to start your timer. So we saw last time that Nehemiah inquired about the condition of the city of Jerusalem and the, and the remnant of Jews that had already returned there. And he learned that the protective walls of the city were torn down and the city was vulnerable and it brought shame upon the people. Nobody wanted to go live in an unprotected, unwalled city. And we saw that because Nehemiah had a deep, deep care for God's children, the Israelites, and also for the, the glory of the Lord, it led him to do four things in chapter one. He inquired. When he heard the news, he wept. Third, he prayed. And then he got involved. So let's see what happens next as we take a look at the king's decree, beginning in chapter two, verse one. So it reads, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. I want to stop there and I want to look at a couple quick things here. First, it's now the Jewish month of Nisan. That is four months after chapter one, where he first learned the information and he prayed to the Lord. So he had committed this matter to the Lord in prayer and he waited on the Lord's timing. And that's important. Let me show you a quote from Warren Wearsby, the late Warren Wearsby. He passed away just a couple years ago. I absolutely love this quote. When you wait on the Lord in prayer, you're not wasting your time. You're investing it. God is preparing both you and your circumstances so that his purpose will be accomplished. Isn't that beautiful? When you wait in prayer, God is preparing you and your circumstances so that his purpose will be accomplished. We're going to see this very thing played out in this text this morning. So Nehemiah is going about his business and Artaxerxes notices that he's sad. There's something the matter. And notice at the end of verse 2, before Nehemiah answers him, he says, I was very much afraid. And I want to stop on that point because there might be things in ministry that frighten you. Maybe it's speaking before a group of people. Maybe it's sharing the gospel with a friend or family member or neighbor and that scares you. Maybe it's taking on some new ministry responsibility, and that's frightening to you. Well, here's the thing. You're not alone. The Apostle Paul said, I came to you, this is to, to the Corinthians, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. And Jesus, before his crucifixion, he was in much anguish, he said. He said, my heart is troubled. So fear is part of our human condition. And it's not a sin provided it doesn't keep you from doing the will of God. Fear alone is not a sin. Just like temptation is not a sin. But it's what you do with it. It didn't keep Jesus from the cross. It didn't keep Paul from going out to the Gentile nations. It doesn't keep Nehemiah from doing the work that God had called him to do. And fear should not keep us from serving the Lord in the way that he calls us. So in verse 2, he says, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, 
may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Now, remember, Nehemiah was a man of prayer. And before he made his request, he again prayed to the God of heaven. It wasn't a long prayer. It wasn't even an out loud prayer. It was just a simple, momentary, silent prayer. He probably said something like, oh God, help me. In his mind, to the Lord. That was a prayer that God heard. And then he spoke up. And he spoke up boldly, asking that the king would allow him to go back and rebuild the city. And verse 6 says, Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. So the king granted Nehemiah's request, but now he makes an even bolder appeal. In verse 7, he says, I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forests, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy? And because it and because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. He made an even bolder request of the king. And the Lord had already moved in the king's heart. Pagan king. And he uh, approved of that. So this is our text. Nehemiah gives this deep concern over to the Lord in prayer. And then he allowed the Lord to prepare both him and the circumstances and then at the right time, he moved forward. He didn't just pray. He prayed, and then he waited on the Lord, and then he acted. And the result was the king's decree. And what I want to show you now is how God fits this into his larger purpose and plan. And we're going to look at four key pieces of, of history as we look next at the prophetic key. And the first one we touched on last week which is Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 11. And I'll read it to you. You probably won't have time to, to turn there. But this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. So remember, the Jews are in exile in Babylon. The northern kingdom was taken captive by Assyria. Later, the southern kingdom by Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, just as God prophesied. And God says, I'm not going to leave you and forget about you. 70 years, and I will bring you back. Now, I want to go to the second uh, event, which is in the book of Daniel. So I would like you to turn there. If you're in Nehemiah, turn right 11 books, I put the list up here for you so that you can find it more easily and you don't waste any of my time here. I don't want to be, I don't want to run long because of you guys now. So rush over to Daniel 
And as you're finding it, I'll start reading this first part. It's Daniel chapter 9. And I think this is one of the most fascinating prophecies in the whole Old Testament. This is amazing. Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, first of all, it says, In the first year of Darius, king of Xerxes, or son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Now Daniel was a teenager when he was taken captive in exile in Babylon. And here he's 86 years old. What's fascinating, he's, he knows of the prophecy in Jeremiah. And he takes it literally as he should. God said 70 years, it's going to be 70 years and it's getting close. So he's praying about it. He didn't just say, well, it's going to happen anyway. Why should I pray? No, he gets on board with what God's going to do. And he's praying and fasting and pleading. And look what happens. As he is, the angel Gabriel comes to him and gives him this amazing prophecy. Skip down to verse 24. These are the words of Gabriel to Daniel. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end will come like a flood. War will continue into the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. This passage is the prophecy of 77s. And it may sound a little cryptic, but it's actually a timeline. And it is the backbone of all prophecy for the nation of Israel. And your translation might say 70 weeks. And, and that's okay, it's literal, but it's not helpful. When you think of a week, you think of what? Seven days. Well, in the scripture, there were weeks of days and there were weeks of years. This is speaking of weeks of years. So that's why most translations say 77, so that it won't mislead us. So that's speaking of weeks of years. So 77 is 70 periods of seven years, which is 490 years. And the prophecy breaks it down into three separate periods of time. Period one is seven sevens, which is 49 years. Period two is 62 sevens, or 434 years. And period three is one seven, which is seven years. And so, <clears throat> follow me on this. It gets a little, a little tricky, but 
it says in verse 25 that from the command to restore and build, rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior, until he comes will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. That's a total of 69 sevens, which is 483 years. That's a mathematical prophecy of when the Savior will come to the nation of Israel. Now, for this to do us any good, we have to, we have to know when the start date is, right? And it says, from the command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. Well, there were four commands for the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. Three of them are in the book of Ezra. And those were all commands to rebuild the temple. There's only one command to rebuild the city and the walls. And guess what? We just read it in the book of Nehemiah. This is the third event. And that was in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And the decree was made by Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. So we know the date of that decree. It's March 14th, 445 B.C. The rebuilding of the city took 49 years. The wall took 52 days. The city took 49 years. That's one period. That's period number one. That's seven sevens, 49 years. But now we need to add period one and two together, which is 69 sevens, or 483 years. And if we count forward 483 years from the decree, the date of the decree, then that should be when the anointed one, the Messiah, arrives. Now, I've done the math for you. But if you were going to go home and do the math yourself, you got to make, you got to be careful because there's one real common mistake. Today, we use a solar calendar, which is 365 and a third days in a year. But back then, they used a lunar calendar. The Jewish calendar was a lunar calendar. There were 30 days in a month and 360 days in a year. So you have to take that into account. And then when you take the start date and count forward 173,880 days, you arrive at April 6th of 32 AD. Now on the Jewish calendar, that's the 10th day of the month of Nisan. That's a really important day because it's the day in which the lambs are presented to the priests to make sure that they are spotless and suitable for the sacrifice that would happen just a couple days later on Passover. But what else happened on that day? Well, let's go to our fourth event. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. And Dan taught on this out of the book of John just a couple weeks ago. Luke chapter 19, let's start in verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever, ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, the owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. 
And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Verse 37, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Well, the 10th day of the month of Nisan in 32 AD was the day in which the, the Jewish people would present their lambs to the priests for inspection before the Passover. But it's also the day in which Jesus Christ descended down the Mount of Olives in what we know as the triumphal entry. And he presented himself to the nation of Israel as their king, their Messiah, the spotless Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. The exact day. Up until that day, Jesus didn't allow himself to be publicly recognized as the Messiah. When if somebody figured it out, and, and then he would tell them, don't tell anyone. Again and again, don't tell anyone about this. But on this day, when some of the Pharisees say, your, your disciples rebuke them. They're calling you the Messiah. That's blasphemy. They're saying you're like the Savior, the Son of God. He says, I tell you what, if they're quiet, the very rocks will cry out. See, on this day... Jesus allowed himself to be publicly declared the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior. Now, we might think that Jesus would be like thrilled with this mass of people greeting him and shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. But he saw through the events of that day to a few days ahead to the day when they would reject him as Messiah and their shouts would turn to crucify him, crucify him. So look down in Luke 19 at verse 40. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he went over, he went over to it and he, I'm sorry, he wept over it and said, if you, even you had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And then this judgment. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Or in the ESV translation, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Do. That gives me the chills. The time of your visitation. How would they know? It was prophesied in Daniel. These, these Pharisees, these, they, the Sadducees, they poured over the scripture. They paid attention to the smallest detail. And they didn't recognize that God was saying, this is the day in which I am presenting the Messiah to you. Well, see, now we see the whole picture of what was going on. The day that Nehemiah went into Artaxerxes, it wasn't just a random chance that it happened on that day. God orchestrated it. He had planned. He knew that was the day from which the 69 weeks would begin. 
that would lead to the very day on which Christ would be presented to the Jewish nation. This is the amazing precision of God's word. Now, this prophecy of Daniel was figured out in the late 1800s by a man named Saint Sir Robert Anderson. If you want to dig into it more, Sir Robert Anderson was the, the head of criminal investigation for Scotland Yard. I see on one slide behind. Oh. <laughs> Two slides behind. Oh. I told Deborah to text me if I get behind. <laughs> okay, so Sir Robert Anderson... He's the, he's the head of criminal investigation for Scotland Yard, and he did all the calculations, and he had his work verified by the, Ro the Royal Observatory in London. And in 1894, he published a book in Great Britain called The Coming Prince. I have a copy of it. The whole book is about the prophecy of Daniel. Upon his retirement, Anderson was knighted by Queen Victoria for his work, hence the title Sir Robert Anderson. He was knighted. There is so much more to this prophecy that we can't even go into this morning, like the seventh week. And in the middle of the week, what happens? This is the future week. This is the tribulation that's coming. In between is an interval, a parenthesis. That's the church age until the full number of the Gentiles come in. And then we're going to go back to this, this calendar once again. It's going to resume with one more week, seven more years at the end time. And then, just the Jesus prophecy about, you know, you, you, because you didn't recognize, you rejected your Messiah. He's crying because he knew the destruction that would come on to Jerusalem. He said, not one stone would be left on top of another. Dan taught on that just a couple weeks ago. Well, you know what? Titus came in in 70 AD and ransacked the temple. They took out all of the implements, the gold candelabra and all of the utensils. And they were going to set up a, 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 a pagan temple of their own with these implements. And then as they're leaving, one of the Romans threw a burning stick into the temple. It caught fire. All of the gold that adorned all of the temple melted and dripped down between the stones. And they took that temple apart stone by stone and scraped up the gold Exactly as Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. It was true. And Dan showed you a picture of the Arch of Titus, which is in Rome. To this day, it was built in 82 AD, and it's all stone carving relief showing the ransacking of the temple and the bringing back of the temple implements by Titus. It happened exactly as Jesus said it would. God's word is amazing, the precision his perfect timing. So there's a lot more to this, but I need to wrap it up and win the bet. <laughs> I'm going to do it. So there's three key points that I want us to take away from this. Number one, as I said, God's timing is always perfect. And he can orchestrate world events to accomplish his purpose. This is true not only in history, but as Dan said in the welcome, it's true in your life as well and in mine. He's in control of all of those things. So stop worrying when the message goes long. <laughs> God's going to use that. Perfect timing. Secondly, there are three pagan kings in this account. Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, and Artaxerxes. And God used every one of them to accomplish his purpose. 
Proverbs 21.1, I love this. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. So the second takeaway, world leaders are merely God's servants, whether they know it or not. Do you believe that? Okay, then why are you so worried when you see the leaders of our day seemingly going against the will of God? Why do you get such unrest? Why do I feel such unrest? God is using them. He's in control. They're his servants. And his will will be accomplished. Amen? Third, Jesus wept as he said, if you had only known this day what would bring you peace. There's only one thing today that will bring you peace. And it's not a sweeping political victory. It's not a new job. It's not a new younger spouse. It's not even several million dollars. There's only one thing that will bring you true lasting peace. And that's a relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. That's the only thing. And the beauty of it, it's something that God offers to you and to me freely. Free gift. It's his grace. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, your timing is perfect. It's perfect, Lord. And, and your power is complete. And your peace is everlasting. Lord, we know this. We know this. Help us to trust in it today and every day. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.